It's June of 1998. Former President Bill Clinton's affair is all over late night. Google has just hired its very first employee. And kids everywhere are getting jiggy with it. And one man in the picturesque town of Sea Haven Island was oblivious to all of it. Good morning. Morning. Guys, always. Uh, And how's your lovely wife? Streaming live to a fictional living room near you was Truman Burbank, played by a post Ace Ventura pre Grinch, Jim Carrey. The Truman Show, a movie about a man unbeknownst to him being watched, and more than that having his every interaction choreographed and scripted around him for all of America's viewing pleasure. The home he lives in, the office he drives to, and the town he grew up in is all one big set. Separating Truman and Sea Haven Island from the real world is a sky-painted dome. The Truman Show hit theaters during the rise of American reality TV. I mean, clearly, people were concerned about what this emerging genre was doing to our collective psyche. But the fictional Truman Show wasn't just a pure 24-hour stream of entertainment. It was also a platform for advertisers. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other Cocos. This is the best. It took Truman a while, but once he saw the writing on the wall, the gig was up. He found the sky-painted door, stepped out, and went to the other side. Like Truman, we're having a hard time figuring out where reality ends and when the advertising begins. People often ask me why I named my agency Church and State. Well, it's because my friend Bram Warshawski told me to. No, but really, come on. The separation of content and advertising, just like the one between church and state, is collapsing back together. Content, editorial, entertainment, what have you, and advertising have been unified to the point where often it's hard to see any line between them at all. And the driving force? It's the same one behind a lot of the disruptions we've looked at this entire season. Technology decreased the cost of production. The internet removed the barriers to entry. And social platforms made global distribution possible for anyone. Overnight, it seemed everywhere you looked was original and entertaining user-generated content. The great part is now anyone can make their own show. The downside? Anyone can make their own show. Instagram stories and IGTV, Yelp reviews, YouTube vlogs, Twitch feeds, TikTok videos. It goes on. And the rest of us are tuning in. And that's all pulled eyeballs away from the media royalty of print magazines, newspapers, and cable TV. And the devout advertisers in the pulpit suddenly were shouting into the same void as our loyal subjects. With decreasing ad revenue, that establishment had to make up the difference by blurring that once sovereign line between art and commerce. And with that, the death of traditional advertising and the rise of the attention economy. As I like to say, people used to vote with their wallets. And now, my friends, they vote with their time. 
At the beginning of the season, we looked at how the advertising industry is being overthrown from my perspective. And to bring it full circle, now we're looking at my industry's coup from a different angle. Yours. While today's infinite scroll of content may be 100% fresh, we don't always know who's actually behind it. With our content ecosystem blurrier than ever, who's got the power? Is it the brands? The users? The traditional media players? Whose voices are we really hearing? And if the content is buzzworthy enough, does it really matter who's paying for it? To answer all this, we're looking at today's version of The Truman Show. That's right, we're stepping into the murky billion-dollar business of online influence. Hi guys, what is up? Welcome back to my channel. Hey guys, everyone, it's your girl, Lily. Once the work of the infomercial man and the celebrity endorser, influence is now embedded within our daily world of online living. Thousands of people every day take to social media to post photos and videos that attempt to humanize the brands paying them. And some of them are making a killing doing it. You've heard the expression life imitating art. Well, this is kind of life imitating advertising. I call it the largest breach of trust in consumer marketing in decades. Because today, unlike The Truman Show, the actors know exactly what their role is. And it's us, staring into our screens, left wondering, what's real? I'm your host, Truman Ron Tight, and this is The Coup. a simple philosophy. Good shit is good shit. I believe that if an ad is good enough, it can be content. And if a piece of content is responsible enough, it can be an ad. Call it what you want. I don't care. Is it an ad? Is it content? It can be both. Because marketing departments the world over, well, they haven't had much choice. Because trust me when I tell you this, people don't like ads. There's a reason we all have ad blocker extensions, mute our phones when commercials pop up, and smash the skip ad button during our favorite vlogs and podcasts. But wait a minute. Don't a lot of people tune into the Super Bowl just to see the ads? I mean, I do. I hate football. Thousands of people shared Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad, right? And oh yeah, wasn't it a razor company that had us talking about toxic masculinity for well over a month? So no, as my friend Miss Joel said, we don't hate ads. We hate shitty ads. And we decided this decades ago. Ever heard of a Michelin star restaurant? Only the spots deemed best in the world receive them. The designation is highly coveted and is awarded by the Michelin brothers. Yes. The same brothers responsible for manufacturing Michelin tires tell us where to eat $1,000 meals. In the early 20th century, the BBC reports that they managed to take the Michelin brand on the road by creating Michelin guides and maps. 
They featured coverage of noteworthy regional restaurants. Quote, that coaxed drivers into traveling further. And of course, they needed sturdy Michelin tires to complete their journeys. With the advent of Michelin stars in 1926 awarded to the best restaurants in the guides, durable car tires and the pursuit of exceptional beef bourguignon became forever entwined. End quote. It was an ad! But it was a good ad. What made it good? Well, people loved it. It, it was useful. And what made it honest? It was called the Michelin Star. And while this kind of branded content is common now, it wasn't always. I mean, when did brands go from just advertising themselves to us to creating for us? And what's the difference between effective content like Michelin's and the stuff that flops? Before we can dive into the influence economy, you should probably understand what created it in the first place. Yeah, I just want, I don't want you to think I'm coming in with an agenda to try because I really want I always to do try to be honest too. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me if you are yeah, or okay. aren't. Okay, cool. That seems to me, but you should come in with an agenda. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm fine with that. Agenda away. This is Alexander Judkowitz. He's the founder and CEO of Group SJR. It's a firm in the WPP family. He writes about the broader shift from companies producing products to producing knowledge. Okay, so here's the first question. Is it true or not true that church and state is the best agency in North America right now? I mean, you know, you, you could go very far <laughs> with that, but it's patently false. Yeah. It is a very, very solid second <laughs> right. to SJR. And when it comes to his work, Alexander doesn't pay much attention to labels. What he cares about is whether the content does its job for his clients. I use the expression, the content is like tofu. It's only as good as what you put into it. I don't put a lot of meaning behind the word content. I think it's all the same. I don't make a distinction between earned and paid. I make a distinction between great, good, and not good, and effective and ineffective. I mean, look, you want to create engagement and action. And those that control and put out the best narratives win. And though what gets labeled as content marketing is relatively new, the discipline is not. Alexander says people have been whining and dining to make their pitch more appetizing for centuries. In his 2017 book, The Strategic Storyteller, Content Marketing in the Age of the Educated Consumer, Alexander writes about the first Duke of Talleyrand, a French diplomat from the Napoleonic era. And while you probably didn't hear about him in history class, Alexander calls him one of the 18th and 19th century's ultimate fixers. Basically, the guy hosted amazing parties. That helped him broker a favorable peace agreement for France. So essentially, the government of France was doing the same thing that brands do. You want to control the conversation. You want to bring people together. You want to create an echo chamber through the influencers that you have. Um, and you want to have something to say. Yeah. And that um, applies today and will apply tomorrow. And while brands aren't throwing all of us dinner parties, they are working hard to entertain us. Good morning, apartment. Ready to start the day. Jump Lego back. released two Hollywood blockbusters, the first of which grossed nearly $500 million at the box office. In 2016, Hamburger Helper dropped a mixtape called Watch the Stove that went viral. And it was actually kind of good. I think it was good, right? And Red Bull? Well, over the last decade, the energy drink company became one of the biggest names in music. Maybe, for the first time ever, companies aren't just trying to woo us into some one-sided relationship. They're actually ready to commit. 
traditional marketing has been all about the brands and not enough about the consumer. And I think of social media and sort of user-generated content all about the consumer, all about the person and nothing about the brand. And I think the content marketing way it has been so effective is because it's a brokering of a relationship. It's the best, most elegant solution as a meeting in the middle of these two things where there's a back and forth, there's a creative tension with it. Sometimes it goes too far one way or the other in that relationship, but ultimately it's a much better meeting and it's a more elegant way than has existed in other mechanisms. Compromise, mutual respect, both foundational to any great partnership. I'm an ad guy, but I'm also a consumer. And either way, I think this is great. I'd much rather companies spend their money entertaining and informing me than serving up the same stale, bite and smile, 30 second spots. That's great, mommy, yum. But actually making the content entertaining, that's the hard part. Alex? At the core, it's taste today because we do have more information at our fingertips is that now it's the opportunity to be discerning, to actually have some taste and have options. Now you can smarten people up by making them laugh or making them think. And while this sounds amazing, the advertising content merger does create confusion. The reality is ads look a lot less like, well, ads. I recently got Apple TV+. Plus. My wife and I have been watching their new original series called The Morning Show. It's got this star-studded cast, and you can tell a lot went into making it. But I quickly realized something that almost became distracting. All of the characters, and I mean, of course, they all use Mac computers, and they all get their breaking news on their iPhones using the company's built-in service, Apple News. Is it a show? Is it an ad? Or is it both? Despite the mixed messages, the best answer I can give you when it comes to the true difference between advertisements and pure editorial or entertainment is this. If the person or company distributing it paid for it to reach you, it's an ad. And as we know, ads, marketing, they come with an agenda to get you to buy, click, share, follow. Of course, there's nothing nefarious about that, but whether the goal of the content is glaring or not, Alex thinks that part of making effective content is acknowledging your position, your agenda, because we all have one. You and I both know we get up in the morning with bias, we go to bed with bias, because that is the nature of man. I think the challenge in life is when agendas seem to be sort of clouded and shrouded and, and kept mysterious. That's where um, I know I feel uncomfortable, and I assume consumers feel uncomfortable and voters and the world feels uncomfortable. But someone with open hands and their agenda fully showing? Fine by me. Brands will eventually figure out whether their content resonates because the consumer will tell them. And to get it right, they'll have to take some risks. I mean, ultimately, you're constant, in a constant state of test and learn, and some of this stuff works, and it just goes, and it Frankensteins itself, and that's okay. That's, that's the way it goes. You can't see these things um, before they happen, and then, you know, it's hard to put the toothpaste back into the tube. And boy, is it ever. In our attention economy, the traditional gatekeepers matter less and less, but we need someone with credibility to tell us what to look at, what to wear, what bank to use. So who possibly could be the arbiters of taste and quality we deserve? 
well, didn't God create influencers for a reason? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I try not to get up in the morning without a Kardashian guiding me in some sort of substantive way. <laughs> the Kardashians of the world are just the latest in a long line of mashups between ad and editorial. And if the influencer began as an experiment, well, it's been a successful one. According to Statista in 2017, the global influencer market was valued at a billion bucks. And Adweek has reported that by 2020, it's likely to reach between five and $10 billion. Trusted curators are the most valued commodity or um, grouping in life. I mean, we look to people we trust. Those are our friends. Those are our kind of version of friends um, online. And like anything else, guess what? Influencers and curators sometimes delight us, sometimes they disappoint us. And I think that that's where we turn, and I'm okay with it. This boom arrived at a pivotal moment in digital marketing. For a few years in the early 2010s, content truly was king. Facebook and other social media giants had created powerful networks where content could spread quickly. And not just from person to person, but from brand to person too. But as the platforms grew more sophisticated, so did the tech giants running them. In 2014, Facebook began to tinker with their algorithm, making organic content from brands less likely to spread. New York Times reporter Bindu Goel writes that the company told marketers, quote, if they wanted to reach consumers on Facebook, they needed to buy an ad, unquote. According to Forbes, the social media giant made changes in early 2018 that took this a step further. Founder Mark Zuckerberg announced that the platform was re-emphasizing family and friends and user news feeds, which Forbes says was, quote, at the expense of unpaid or organic posts by business and media, end quote. And just like that, organic reach died. Brands, news outlets, and indie creators who spent years growing their audience on the platform now had to pay big money to reach the very people who specifically asked to hear from them. I know this because my company started as a content marketing agency. Our whole business model was based on organic reach. And then, well, we became an ad agency. And with more social media giants throwing up paywalls between brands and their customers, brands needed another cheaper and more authentic way to get their content past the algorithms and in front of all of you. And who better to sell to you than you? Or at least people like you, people you want to be friends with, and especially the people you want to be. To get a sense of what exactly the industry of influence has evolved into, I called Ramona Pringle. She's a tech columnist for CBC and an associate professor at Ryerson University's Faculty of Communication and Design here in Toronto. You know, brands turn to those influencers often because it felt like it was this more organic way to reach audiences where if, you know, they had a brand page and all of a sudden had to pay to reach their followers, maybe if someone, uh, you know, was more of a quote unquote, just real person and not a brand, they would have an easier time cutting through the noise. So I do think, you know, it was that dance with the algorithms that sort of ignited the interest in the influencer as the individual who can reach people, who can reach your consumers and your customers. Ramona says to understand what's happening here, we need to acknowledge an important distinction. There are two types of influencers. Having influence and just being a self-proclaimed influencer are not one and the same. <laughs> 
I think as long as you have uh, some kind of expertise or focus, if you're making music, if you're a comedian, if you're like posting amazing gluten-free recipes, like if there's something that you're doing that brings people back, there is that authenticity that will hook people. And that's where, you know, I, I think that it is sustainable. See, before this type of influencer was doing hashtag ad posts and going live to talk about their paid partnerships, they were simply creators. They were young people in the thousands, vlogging from their bedrooms about their lives, sharing their every thought, making us laugh, or teaching every makeup technique under the circle lamp. And as journalist Taylor Lorenz points out for The Atlantic, in the early days, this was a movement led mostly by women and people of color. Welcome, what's up, what's Gucci, what's poppin'? My name is Liza. No mirror makeup challenge, okay. I'm gonna cheat a little because I... <laughs> Oh, I'm today scared. I'm gonna make a Super Mario star cake or attempt to with fondant. So this could be a little Hi, I'm Al Mills, and in honor of Mother's Day being this week, today my mom and I are gonna switch roles. They created stuff brands couldn't, had opinions brands didn't, and delivered that in a tone that brands wouldn't. Their voices were passionate, and their engagement with audiences was organic. And once brands got wise to the massive audience these creators attracted, well, they wanted to get in on it. And for creators, this was a chance to cash in on their hard-won credibility and expertise. That's awesome, right? But in the years since the space became an entire economy unto itself, being paid to influence grew from a side hustle to the hustle. Last November, Wired staff writer Paris Martineau wrote that marketers have been able to thrive off the built-in intimacy of creators. Paris says many of the fans following along don't see them as salespeople. They trust them. Heck, sometimes they even consider them friends. Quote, This perceived authenticity is part of why brands shell out so much cash in exchange for a brief appearance in your Instagram feed. Unquote. The keyword there is perceived authenticity. Which brings us to the second type of influencer, Ramona. It's just influencer purely as influencer and where that is the, the sole focus of your brand, your identity, your content. That's where you see, um, you know, less and less authenticity often. And that's what's frustrating to consumers. That's where I think we're starting to see the decline. The influencers gone wrong highlight reel is long. Last year, internet personality Tana Mojo organized an alternative to VidCon, the popular meet-and-greet conference for YouTube creators and fans, and she named the event TanaCon. She needs to give everybody their money. Yeah! This shit show couldn't get any worse! Are you guys having fun today? <laughs> Good Times, the company that helped put on the event, took to Twitter to apologize to fans saying when 15,000 unregistered guests showed up, they were unable to accommodate the more than 10,000 attendees they hadn't expected. Well, let's just say influencers may know how to draw a crowd, but few should be tasked with managing them. TanaCon was a disaster, leaving thousands of her young paying fans dehydrated and devastated in a hotel parking lot. And at the beginning of 2018, YouTube's most popular and now infamous vlogger, Logan Paul, received international backlash after posting a vlog of him and his friends laughing after finding and filming a man who died by suicide, which he shared to his audience of millions. 
clients, most of whom were children. Outrage is growing overnight about a video Logan Paul posted on the slopes of Mount Fuji known as the Suicide Forest, then posted the video with the title, We Found a Dead Body in the Japanese Suicide Forest. During the video, Paul said, I think this definitely marks a moment in YouTube history because I'm pretty sure this has never happened to anyone on YouTube this year, ever. He was ranked by Forbes magazine as one of the top entertainment influencers in the world. Major companies pay him considerable amounts of money to post eye-catching videos but even he says his latest content was his biggest mistake. Meanwhile, the word of the day is still authenticity. But the more people self-identify as real, the more inauthentic this all feels. Basically, you've got these in this realm of influencers becoming almost like reality TV stars where we're starting to see, you know, these headlines that now reach mainstream media about people faking moments of their lives. Everyone's questioning whether or not it's real, whether or not it's authentic. It's because they need to have content so that their audience keeps coming back. And when it comes to this kind of influencer, well, I mean, when we follow them, I think we got a pretty good sense of what we're signing up for. They draw us in through their lifestyle, their looks, their hashtag couple goals. I mean, the career reality TV contestants fall into this category. But the other kind of capital I influencer is less obvious, at least initially. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced it. You discover someone you think is great, you love what they're about, their posts are funny or thoughtful or even informative. They're down to earth. They started doing a few ads per month a while back, which you didn't mind. What they do on here is valuable and it takes time. But then, well, comes the spawn con creep. Instead of every couple of weeks, the paid posts are now frequent. And you can't remember the last time you saw an actual update from them. Now, instead of this give and take of useful content in exchange for engagement, is this. Slowly and then all at once. You're now part of the stat that helps them get free stuff. So what happened to make influencer culture so insufferable? How did we go from celebrities and creators doing ads a couple of times a year to this? Well, it paid. And then it paid. Paris from Wired spoke with James Bennett, an influencer marketing consultant, who said that in 2016, Endorsements from top-level influencers were priced between uh, five and $10,000 per post. And now, quote, brands are expected to pay well over $100,000 for the same placement, unquote. And once the big money started flowing, oh, the influence industry exploded in scale. To really take this business to the next level, agents were needed to discover and amplify all this talent. Wired broke the still-forming industry down this way. If you're an established player, you'll likely have an agent. Hell, some top-tier influencers have an entire management team. And agents alone charge a monthly retainer ranging anywhere from $1,000 to $20,000. And they, in turn, line up lucrative deals for their influencer clients at the traditional cost of a standard 20% commission. Emerging influencers more commonly work with third-party digital marketplaces that play matchmaker with advertisers and brands, the two largest being Grapevine and FameBit. They was bought by YouTube in 2016. FameBit is sort of like Indeed.com for influencers. Influencers can browse potential brand endorsement and spawn con packages, and if they get the job, 
FameBit takes a 10% cut from both the brand and the creator. And look, there's nothing wrong with people making money. We're not an influencer marketing agency, but Church and State has been hired to run influencer campaigns for companies like the CBC. We've made money from it. But here's the thing. With the corporatization of influence, in many cases, monetizing the content has become more important than making the content. And because of that shift, the voices of genuine, talented creators are harder to hear. The, the sort of origins of influencer marketing and the, the sort of um, telling a story for a brand was that it was really, really authentic, that it was really, really genuine. But I think as the economy grows, right, as it becomes a business model, that which was the sort of essence, the appeal of this whole ecosystem also potentially becomes, you know, part of its demise because it just becomes a new, a new model to emulate. But I think we need to find models. You know, there are production teams. They need to plan in advance. Not everything can be done the night before by one, you know, rogue influencer. And so I think trying to figure out what that model is, understanding that the appeal or the origins of this sort of new ecosystem are these things like authenticity, that the person who's representing something does in fact stand by the, the underlying message of what it is that they're saying and what it is that they're promoting as opposed to, you know, just a pretty face who's being paid by the hour. But there's a bigger shift happening here. See, it may look like the influencers are the new gatekeepers of content, but let's not forget, if a brand is paying the influencer, they're not paying Instagram the platform that makes it all possible. And insiders have begun to suspect that Instagram is reading from the same monetization playbook that Facebook introduced back in 2014. As John McCarthy from The Drum recently reported, the platform has made several changes geared towards monetization, and marketers and influencers say it could be driving down organic reach. Of course, Instagram has said that users continue to see 90% of their friends post in their feeds. But even if Instagram is making these changes, I get it. I mean, Instagram built the oven for free. Don't they deserve a piece of the pie? I think they do. And regardless of how we feel about the direction it's headed, Instagram does not seem to be changing course anytime soon. As you've likely noticed, Instagram is now hiding like counts on users' posts. And some influencers have argued that it could weaken their leverage over brand deals and promotions. But not everyone with skin in the game is against the move. Earlier this month, Jessica G, who runs a popular account about her traveling family, which has a following of nearly 2 million, told BuzzFeed News that, quote, brands and sponsors don't choose to collaborate with us just because we have millions of followers, but because those followers are a real community of real engaged people who like our content, end quote. Whatever you think about Instagram's intentions, there's a pattern that does seem to be repeating itself. The platform makes a place for people to gather. People build an audience. Brands help those people monetize that audience. The platform decreases organic reach, forcing brands to funnel their budgets toward paid ads. That saturates today's platform of choice with what people no longer want to see. And then it's on to the next one. And look, I don't want to overstate this transition. 
Instagram is still the dominant platform for influencers, with The Verge reporting it's hit over 1 billion users as of June 2018. And brands, for their part, have adapted by introducing micro and nano influencers in an effort to target even nichier audiences. But in the meantime, the platform is getting saturated with increasingly ridiculous ad content. And just like we saw with Facebook, the tide may be turning. In a recent tech column for CBC, Ramona wrote that the audiences for top influencers may already be aging out. There's a new platform that's captured Gen Z that even has moguls like Mark Zuckerberg worried. So to get a better sense of the young people fueling this transition, I spoke to Lauren Strapagale, a journalist who regularly speaks with kids these days when covering internet culture for BuzzFeed. Well, okay, what's wild to me is I talk to teenagers all the time as part of my job, like when I cover viral stories or I'm talking to like kids who use TikTok or whatever, and all of them are so already trained in the language of being an influencer. Like they talk about their brand, they talk about their audience. So many teenagers, like literal teenagers, children, are like influencers in waiting or like they aspire to be influencers because they've seen it's like, it's what looks like an easy way to get clout, that they love that word, clout, clout and fame and money and power and like a nice life. Like you see people like Tana Mojo wearing like her Chanel and Gucci and whatever. And all she seems to do is post like cute photos and have fun all the time, right? Why wouldn't you want that? But the perfectly styled haute couture wardrobe, extravagant photo shoots and magazine grade photo editing? Lauren says the trademark influencer aesthetic is on the way out. I think the current crop of influencers is a bubble. And when I'm when I say that I mean people who are kind of like early twenties, like people like Tana Mojo or like a million other girls on Instagram that all kind of look the same. Um, you know, they wear like Fashion Nova, they have like lip fillers, they have hair extensions. It's a very particular look and they lead a very particular lifestyle that seems very fake, very polished, just like too composed to be real. The Atlantic spoke with younger influencers who feel the exact same way. Take Reese Blutstein, username Double Exposure. She's a 22-year-old influencer with more than 238,000 followers. She says, quote, For my generation, people are more willing to be who they are and not make up a fake identity. We're trying to show a real person doing cool things as a real person, not trying to create a persona that isn't actually you. Unquote. And really, as more influencers accept and serve up increasingly far-fetched spawn con that the brands who pay for it are requesting, they're more like surrogates than trendsetters. I mean, that's what you are. If you are a creative influencer, you are just a marketing tool. But I think they know that. People are going to be craving something more authentic. But there's already people lined up to provide that. Like, if you look at the very young influencers, like someone like, I don't know, Emma Chamberlain, I think is her name. Okay, hi. How are you? Oh my god, I'm so glad. Recently, I've been having an issue. I've become dependent on something that is not good for me. I've been postmating every meal. I'm not kidding. Most people are like, yeah, I And much of this new wave of highly marketable tweens and teens is coming up through TikTok. The kind of girl who gets popular on there is not so polished. Um, like, I wrote a thing about this just like bubble trend called e-girls. They're kind of this 
alternative kind of punky grungy look, which is so different from the usual Instagram influencer. According to the Washington Street Journal, TikTok, owned by Chinese tech giant ByteDance, was the third most installed app worldwide in the first quarter of 2019. And now, with over 1 billion monthly users globally, it rivals Instagram and is catching up to YouTube. If you don't have children, you've likely heard of the music video sharing platform through the cultural mediators of the adult world. The New York Times' Kevin Roos calls it, quote, a quirky hybrid of Snapchat, the defunct video app Vine, and the TV segment Carpool Karaoke. He continues, TikTok's success has spawned legions of influencers, users with millions of followers, and household name status among teenagers, unquote. It's kind of like one long scroll of original sketches and skits, popular dances, and riffs on funny or strange videos and audio that goes viral on the platform. Take, for example, the app's best-known viral phenomenon, the Yeehaw Challenge. It took over the app for nearly a month at the beginning of the year. The basic premise featured users doing choreography to Atlantic artist Little Nas X's Old Town Road turning them into cowboys and cowgirls in the process. And just in case you haven't heard it. I got the horses in the back. Horse is attached. Head is mad. This was a previously unknown song, which I'm told falls in the genre of country trap. Is that like Merle Haggard or something? Anyway, as you likely are now well aware, the challenge didn't just earn Little Nas X's song viral success on TikTok. The platform also helped skyrocket it to the top of the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed at number one for a record-breaking 17 weeks in a row. So even if you've never heard of the app, it is powerful. And there's a lot of money there. But if you're just hearing about it, well, that makes a lot of sense. Because this explosive marketplace has only begun receiving in-depth serious coverage in the last year or so. I actually think journalism is worlds behind on influencers because so many influencers are women. They were just, you know, pushed aside. It's like this frivolous, dumb thing happening on social media. Who cares? But this is big business. We're talking thousands, millions of dollars exchanged from companies to influencers. And it, that's a huge industry. And I think we should be talking about it more, in fact. And it may be a bit ageist, too. In July, the 10th annual VidCon took place in Anaheim, California. The New York Times' Kevin Roos was in attendance and described it as the perfect place to observe influencers in their natural habitat. And despite the frivolity that often rises to the top, Kevin says these kids mean business, writing, quote, Professional YouTubers are the children of reality television. The dramas of their videos are often inextricable from their lives. Continuing, he says, just as the 20th century groomed a generation of children steeped in the ethos of TV culture, the 21st century will produce a generation of business moguls, politicians, and media figures who grew up chasing clout online and who understand how to operate the levers of the attention economy. Lauren says some of YouTube's top creators, like brothers Logan and Jake Paul, at points have received way more consistent viewership than TV shows that get wall-to-wall -wall coverage in entertainment publications. Like, let's talk about that. <laughs> Even the marketers and traditional media have, <clears throat> you know, slept on TikTok. And that's precisely been its appeal to advertisers. 
Their VP of digital marketing, Tressie Lieberman, told The Atlantic that, quote, TikTok provides a fresh place for brands to be experimental and make an impact, unlike other social networks that are already saturated with ads. And while many brands are excited by the fresh new ways they can get kids to creatively integrate products into their content, Lauren, for one, is honestly over it. Okay, I think the reason I am so cynical about marketing is because I am on the receiving end of so much of it as a journalist. My inbox is almost unusable for all the press releases I get, for all the pitches from public relations people that I'm never going to cover. Like you having a product or a new ad is not a reason for me to write an article despite what you think. Your inbox? Ha! Hop over to LinkedIn. You should see some of the messages I get. But after covering this entire space for the last few years, well, yeah, okay. I'm sure Lauren's seen more than her fair share of ludicrous spawn con. So, does anything in the industry actually surprise her anymore? God, no, nothing surprises me. <laughs> Honestly, like, people fake all kinds of stuff for clout and for spawn con, like faking engagements or relationships or pregnancies. Like, of course they are. People will do anything to get a paycheck. Look, today, all of us seem to be making some sort of play to build our influence. Our clout, fame, power, whatever that end is, we're working on the means. But for career influencers who take the idea of a personal brand to a whole new level, staging their own life as dramatically as others did to Truman, but for a fraction of the fame, does the end justify any means? Yeah, sometimes I wonder if you're somebody who's one of these huge influencers, do you even know what's real anymore? Does it matter? I bet it doesn't matter. I think that's the answer. I think I agree with her. And as Ramona told me, these audiences are way less impressionable than we'd like to think. You know, people are savvy. And I think often consumers don't get enough credit. There's only so much people are going to go for this sort of uh, fake authenticity before the tides start turning a bit. The whole model is already at the point of parity. Will it reinvent itself or collapse? The answer hinges on whether the influencer show will continue to have an audience. There's clearly been one so far. You know, it can be understandably uh, tricky to gauge what people want and do they want something aspirational or do they want something authentic when they say they want both you know to, to really identify that sweet spot um, is understandably uh, you know it's it's new ter- it's new terrain Beyond making us all more suspicious and even a little more guarded, influences commercialization also overshadows the invaluable and meaningful ways that people can move and inspire us. Author Lawrence Scott wrote about this for The New Yorker. Quote, Our ongoing challenge then will be to negotiate the inherent inauthenticity and cynicism of an influence economy while preserving our ability to be occupied and perhaps changed for the better by the alien ideas of other people. Unquote. But Scott also says influence could be noble. One of my favorite bits of pop history proves this. At the height of the polio outbreak, Elvis Presley was asked to take part in the March of Dimes campaign against the disease. Hey kids, could I talk to you for about 30 seconds? Uh, this is Elvis Presley. 
If you believe polio is beaten, I ask you to listen. Remember me. Now that's the voice of thousands. Who he did a photo op while receiving the vaccination shot before an appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Good night. It's a really big shoe. With his help, there was a huge surge in youth turnout for the vaccination. That in time led to the end of the disease. See, this tension between those who want to be influential and those who have influence, it's always been there. There's some influencer content that I tolerate and some that I even engage with. And that's because it's being posted and created by people that I genuinely respect. People who produce and create things and share perspectives that are valuable to me. The income's gotta come in somehow. And where does the money come from? Sponsorship deals, speaking engagements, consulting, partnerships, all of it paid for by brands for influence. It's a vicious cycle that I'm a part of and that I pay into and that I benefit from. But we don't have to lose ourselves in it. We still get to choose who we work with, what we support, what we promote, and who we're aligned with. That's our choice. Unlike our pal Truman, the lines between content that is manipulative and content that is good, it's not so set in stone inside of a giant fictional studio in Burbank. And that's the hard part. This landscape is constantly shifting from under us. When we think we got things figured out, a shiny new medium springs up, a new technology, a new trend, and with it, the whole dilemma comes up again. As we transition towards the next thing, every person, every consumer, every company, we're going to need to make our own decisions over and over again. Look, I'm a speaker, I'm an author, and I proudly help some people sell stuff to other people. Now I've got a podcast where you get to hear how smart I am. Is this an ad? Yes? No? Doesn't matter. But I'm definitely trying to sell you on something but I don't think you want to hear that at the end. None of us can claim to be Truman anymore. We know exactly what's going on, or at least we can if we choose to. And in case we don't see you later. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Thanks to my guests, Alexander Jukowicz, Ramona Pringle, and Lauren Strapagale. And hey, thanks to everybody who came on the show this season. This episode was produced and written by Ali Graham and Chris Connolly, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullockon and Ali Graham. Our theme song is by the exquisite Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Art List. Yeah, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and if you know anyone who might like it, let them know. Right now, we are busy making season two of The Coup, and we'll be back soon with more stories. If you think there's an industry or disruption that we should cover, let us know. You can reach us at podcasts at churchstate.co. I'm Ron Tite, the executive producer and host of The Coup. Until then, hey, we really appreciate you listening. We hope you liked it. Try to forget about the other kids. Try